This is episode 134 with former pro soccer player, author, ultramarathoner, and creator of the award-winning documentary, The Ultimate Triathlon, Mr. Luke Tyberski. Welcome back to the Strength Running Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Fitzgerald, and I'm excited to bring you the brightest minds in the fitness industry to help you become a better runner. I interview elite runners, but you'll also be surrounded by their support team, the sports psychologists, strength experts, coaches, and physical therapists who make it all possible. The goal here is to always give you new ideas to elevate your running, because as I like to say, knowledge is a competitive advantage. If you're new to the show, feel free to browse the other 133 episodes or our website, strengthrunning.com, for more details on diet for runners, which training strategies are most worth your time, how to stay healthy, and the mental fitness skills that help you turn into a confident and mentally tough runner. I also want to thank today's sponsor, SteadyMD. They utilize video meetings, the phone, and texting to provide a personal concierge doctor for endurance runners helping you with nutrition, recovery, and injury issues that a regular PCP usually can't tackle. And with 24-7 virtual access and a doctor who's also a sub-3 marathoner, you know you're getting great runner-specific service. Go to SteadyMD.com strengthrunning to see if they have any spots left and check out all the benefits of telemedicine. All right, I'm excited to introduce you to my guest, Mr. Luke Tyberski. Luke is a former professional-level soccer player from Australia who suffered from clinical depression. He's not an incredible athlete, but his progress from soccer player to ultra-endurance runner is a remarkable tale of grit and perseverance. He's the author of Chasing Extreme, and his transformational story has appeared on the Rich Roll podcast, Running for Real with Tina Muir, and elsewhere. He's also the creator of the award-winning documentary, The Ultimate Triathlon. In this conversation, we talk about how Luke battled depression and got started with endurance running, how he ultimately overcame his career of injuries, and the mindset required to excel in sport. Please note that this is an excerpt from our longer and more in-depth conversation for Team Strength Running, our affordable group coaching program for runners. To help support runners, we are now open. Go to strengthrunning.com join to see the details and become our newest member. Without further delay, please enjoy my conversation with Mr. Luke Tyberski. Thanks so much for coming on and making some time. Uh, my absolute pleasure, mate. I always love chatting to like-minded people and people who are uh, trying to help others. Yeah, well, I'm excited to chat with you. You have just such an incredible story, and I'm excited to hear more about it. Oh, mate, it's, I, I look at it as just my life, and if I, my life can help uh, others be their best selves, then we're all winning, right? Yeah. And you know, when I was preparing for this conversation, I felt inspired and motivated the entire time just learning about your life. And I think your life is one of those uh, lives where if it was a story, it'd be a story that everyone wanted to hear. And you've just come such a long way over the last decade or so. And, and I'm excited to dive into that. Sounds good, mate. And I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll, I'll get you to send me your address and I'll send you over my book, Chasing Extreme, so you can hear it from the horse's mouth um, uh, in, a, in a story form rather than just what we're going to talk about today. Oh, great. That'd be really cool. Thanks. No problem. 
So let's go back a little bit. Let's talk a little bit about before you were a runner. You weren't always an endurance athlete, were you? I didn't like running at all, period. <laughs> Me and you both. <laughs> yeah. So back, back, back in the day when I grew up in Australia, I live in London now, um, I was a soccer player um, and that was my dream. All I ever wanted to do as a kid was play professional soccer. So I had to run, but it was always I ran because I got to chase the ball around. And to say that I enjoyed pre-season training, doing sprints and things like that would be a lie. I dreaded it, but I did it because it enabled me to obviously chase this ball around and do what I love doing and play the game. So it wasn't as if I grew up as a child, as a teenager, as an adolescent, um, having a track background or doing any sort of running activities in terms of running for the sake of running. Um, I need to, if there wasn't a ball to chase, then I didn't run. <laughs> well, we were, we were very similar in that regard. I was the kid in eighth grade in middle school who avoided all of the running events in track and field week. And so I was the 100 pound five foot three kid sh throwing the shot put instead of running the 800 of the mile because I just couldn't be bothered with running around for fun. Uh, that just didn't appeal to me at the time. Um, but you know, I've long thought that soccer is one of the best uh, preparatory sports for uh, track and field or road racing or cross country, just because of the volume of running that you that you do in the sport of soccer. And a lot of it's at a high intensity. Um, but you actually went on to to not just play in high school and college, right? You went on to play at higher levels. I did. I, as I said, all I ever wanted to do as a kid was play professional soccer. And obviously, soccer is not huge in Australia. It's, it was, I feel like, because I actually lived in the US as well. So I understand the size of the game there. I feel like in Australia, when I grew up, it was sort of like maybe 15 years ago in the US. So the MLS was just starting and there was a bit of a buzz around this, this, this game. Where in Australia, we had, a, we had a professional league, but there was only a few players that were fully professional. Most of it was semi-professional. Um, but all I ever wanted to do was play. And my parents were supportive um, and encouraged me as long as I was willing to do the work. So a lot of, I guess, a lot of the, um, the things that we're going to talk about where I got my mindset from was at a young age, my parents were like, fine, you want to play professional sports, then you have to put the work in. And I was constantly training by myself to become a better soccer player, kicking the ball around in the back garden. And although I didn't like it, but I knew that if I became fitter, I could become a better athlete. So I had this insane, I, I, use, I don't use the word loosely, uh, lightly, work ethic as a kid you know i'm 14 15 and i'm asking my parents to drive me to the gym at six o'clock in the morning because i wanted to get a work in workout in by myself not with a coach not with anyone else just i want to go and run on a treadmill i wanted to go and do plyometric training by myself before my grandmother would pick me up have breakfast and go to uh, high school so that started quite young and it really just stayed with me throughout my years. Um, I played in high level in Australia, but then I went to college in America for a couple of years and I ended up playing professionally 
in the lower leagues in America, in Belgium, and also in the UK. So I played about six, seven seasons where all I had to do was kick a ball around and people paid me for it. That's the dream, right? You kind of accomplished your childhood dream of being a professional soccer player. I did. I did. And I I didn't make any money out of it. So in I live in London now. And in the UK, when you say you used to be a professional soccer player, they look at you as if you're like in the Premier League making, you know, five and 10 million pounds uh, a year. But it wasn't the case. Like I, I didn't make any money at the end of my career, but I played professionally for you know, six or seven years. And my dream as a four-year-old, five-year-old, I remember I can have these first memories as a child that all I wanted to do was kick this ball around and not have to worry about anything else. And I did that wholly and solely for, for a period of time. So I always look back on my time as a soccer player that all the dedication, all the hard work was a success. The dedication and sacrifices my parents made for me, we look at it collectively as a success. Because how many people at the age of four um, can look at this is the thing I want to do in my life, fast forward to when I retired at 28, I achieved it. Yeah, it's an incredible story. And have you used what you've learned now in your training for more endurance oriented events? Eventually I have, yes. (laughs) (laughs) It's good to hear. (laughs) Yeah, so I, I definitely learned from... See, one of, the, one of the key things that I learned specifically about my body is, and I'm definitely the exception to the rule here, uh, I put on uh, lean, lean muscle very quickly, you know, and I'm sure there's going to be a bunch of people out there that are just sort of shaking their heads going, what are you talking about? I, I, I'm in the weight room all the time and I can't put on on, on, on any size or whatever. I'm just one of those re- yeah I'm one of those really lucky lucky people right and I and I can acknowledge that so you know when I've started to do a, a strength and conditioning in program that I that I work with I know that keep all things sort of the same is I eat well I rest well and I train smart that regardless if I'm trying to lift really heavy or anything like that is I will put on um, lean muscle that's just how my body's made up so knowing that is i'm not going to go and smash a couple of big upper body sessions um in the weight room every week because one like i i I do a lot of running but also do triathlon so it's not going to help me so it's more beneficial to spend time in the pool but even if i don't lift weights and i'm just swimming more than the average person i put on more lean muscle so I have to acknowledge that that happens, so I have to be careful with the amount of, of 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 weight training I do. Make sure it's I'm structurally sound and I do all the the smaller things to activate the muscles. But I, I have to get over myself, so to speak, not worry about how I look aesthetically because it's one thing to say, "Oh, well, I've done a couple of sessions and my arms look really toned and my back looks good," and you know I, I'm a human like everyone else and I like looking good. But is that going to help me function with the rest of my training? So I, I have taken that element. And the second element of the taking a holistic approach is I, I laugh when, when you ask me, and I said eventually, because now 100% I do. I, I even married an osteopath 
that they take a very holistic approach to their treatment. Um, so I, I live with, with that as well. So there, there is no two ways about it. But the way I came about living through more a holistic approach was when I retired from soccer, on the same day, I kid you not, on the same day I retired, I was because I tore a calf muscle, I'm icing my calf, I'm laying in my room, and I'm just thinking, now what? Now what am I going to do with my life? And in this moment, my world, without sounding dramatic, came crashing down because I felt this huge loss of identity because all I ever wanted to be as a four-year-old was a soccer player. And I identified with that way too much throughout my entire life till the age of 28 on this day when I retired. I was battling with depression, something that I didn't speak about with anyone. Some days I wouldn't even leave my house if I was injured. I didn't have to train or had no other commitments. Um, so it was, it was in a pretty dark place. And then I thought, well, now what? And still to this day, I don't know why this thought even came into my head with everything else that was spoken about already in the conversation. But I had a couple of friends who were in Australia and they were doing marathons. They were training to, to just run a couple of marathons. Now, I thought they were lunatics. I thought they were absolutely crazy. I thought they were on a death wish. And I, you know, People who ran marathons were crazy and they're shortening their life expectancy by decades. This was my mentality. Now, I remember a conversation I had with one of my friends and he told me about this race through the Sahara Desert where you ran the equivalent of six marathons in seven days and you carried all your food in your backpack. And I thought to myself, this guy, he's making it up. There's no way in hell that there's a race like this. Like people can't do that, you know, closed-minded at this time. And anyway, so we're on this day where I'm icing my calf muscle. I'm in my bedroom. I've got this l loss of identity. I'm battling with these de depressive moods. I have no idea what I'm going to do with the rest of my life. And I just wanted to run away from the situation that I was in. I remembered this guy telling me about this race. So I Googled it and I found this race called the Marathon de Sabs. And Jason, I have no idea why, and I still don't to this day, and we're talking, this was eight years ago, that I grabbed the phone, called the number, and just said to the woman on the other end of the phone, can I have a place? And it was in six months' time. And she said, well, it's normally you know, a waiting list of a year or two, but if you pay your deposit, we've had a couple of cancellations. If you pay your deposit today, you can, I can give you a spot. And basically, my, my whole life savings from my football was the amount that the race cost because it's a very expensive race. And I paid it on that day, and then I thought, right, that's what I'm doing. It's in six months. I'm focused on doing this. And that was the start of the next chapter in my life. I can't believe you got ready for that race in six months. And you started that six months with a torn calf. <laughs> it's just incredible. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was a crazy time. And so fast forward for the next, uh, so that was 2000, end of 2011. I did the Marathon de Saabs in 2012. And I did quite well. I, I had a whole experience where I 
got severely um, blistered toes. They started to deglove. I was on, they got infected. I was on penicillin on day three. I had a stomach virus at the end of day three. I was on an intravenous drip in the middle of day four. We've still 40 miles to run. I finished that day. I ended up finishing the race. Um, so I, I had the whole experience, right? Yes, that's some experience. Yeah. yeah. And, and I'm sure I'm sure you look back on it and, and think it was an incredibly wonderful experience. It was. I learned, I learned um, probably five or six years worth of knowledge in seven days about <laughs> endurance sports, about fueling, about nutrition, about running, about multi-stage, about everything that the Marathon de Sables is about. And... I learned a lot about myself, but I, it wasn't revealed till years later because from 2012 to 2016, let's say, I was on this mission to create this new life. And I called it becoming an endurance adventurer because, you know, when people ask, what do you do for a living? Because everyone does, right? We all have to know what others, each other's labels are. So we know, do we talk to them? Do we spend time with them? Can they help me? Can I help them or the rest of it? I gave myself this title of endurance adventurer. And in short, what that meant was for some crazy reason, I thought what I'm going to do is I'm going to do these big epic challenges all around the world, have sponsors pay for me to do them. And I want to inspire others to get out of their comfort zone and challenge themselves. I'm going to write books. I'm going to have documentaries made. I'm going to speak all around the world about these challenges. And that's going to be my new life. Now, fast forward to 2016 after I did a big challenge called the Ultimate Triathlon. And my life came crashing down because I was extremely adrenally fatigued. My endocrine system was starting to shut down. I wasn't secreting certain hormones and things like this. I was in a really bad place and it took me 18 months to recover to come out of that hole. To answer your initial question, the second part of what I learned about looking back on my, my training and what I could have done differently was from 2016 to now, I truly live a holistic lifestyle in terms of everything I do, training, everyday life, um, my nutrition, my stress levels, and all the, and my mindset and all the rest of it. But it took me four years of thrashing myself and 18 months of forced recovery to understand that our bodies aren't machines. What we do on a daily basis affects us in training, but also to really appreciate the stress that endurance sports plays on our bodies, but also what our everyday stress puts on ourselves. So I was at this stage, I was talking about my depression a little bit more. I was going to therapy. I was starting to get an understanding of that and being more open. So that was that was starting my rehabilitation as well in terms of my mental health. So this massive holistic approach to life came to in 2016-17 where I realized if I want to keep doing this type of stuff and not just completely breaking myself and actually just everyday health is trying to get to that optimal state then i have to approach things differently and that's sort of how i got to how i train today wow there's um 
you know, you're absolutely right with your approach to training and how you think about living a more holistic life. I'll never forget that my college cross-country coach would always remind us that running is not a sport, it's a lifestyle. And it was this interesting way of thinking about running that brought in everything else that you do during the rest of the day, because you're either recovering from a workout or you're preparing for a workout and what you're doing the other 23, 22 hours a day that you're not running has such a direct impact on your ability to perform, your ability to feel good, your ability to stay healthy and prevent injuries. And so, yeah, I, I think, you know, once you really uh, uh, invest in yourself by making that commitment, I think, you know, your, your injury rate's going to go down and your performances are definitely going to improve. Um, now, Luke, I'd love to talk a little bit more about, uh, the depression that you were experiencing at this time. Do you think, you know, first of all, I'd love to know, you know, it, it sounds like you were, you know, you had a, a real diagnosis of depression and I admittedly don't know too much about, uh, depression, you know, from a clinical perspective. And I'd love to know, like, how did, how did this make you feel? What kind of impact did it have on your day-to-day -day life? Because it does sound like you used, um, running or, or sports more in general to help combat that. A hundred percent. I, I use the term, I use sort of the analogy that I was addicted to endurance sports, mainly, mainly running. Most of what I did was ultra running. Right. And I was addicted to it. I retired from football, I from soccer. I had a, a loss of identity and I was battling with you know this this depression that I was going through. I wasn't speaking about it with anyone, wasn't seeing any um uh any sort of therapist at this time. And as things went on, my relationship finally finished. Uh, we we went our separate ways, which then spiraled me even worse and what it sort of looked like on a on a day to day basis was, um, some days I struggled to get out of bed, and what I mean by that is, I wanted to get out of bed. I was telling myself to get out of bed. I was willing myself. I was crying at times because, please, Luke, just get out. But I literally could not drag myself out of bed. And there were times when I I didn't want to live anymore. You know, I didn't want to feel this pain. So there was twice where I stood on tops of bridges, not wanting to be here anymore. So my depression did get to that point. Um, I was, I, I'm quite happy that I, I talked myself down, so to speak, uh, figuratively and literally. Um, and I would feel really low because I was depressed. And there was only two ways that really got me back up. And that was when I was out running for hours on end, um, whether that was in the morning or in the evening or because during this time of two years where it was really bad, um, I had insomnia quite bad. I would sleep, when it was its worst, I was sleeping six to eight hours a week. Some nights I wouldn't even get changed out of my clothes. I would not even go to bed. I would just put on some running clothes and go out at 11, 12 o'clock at night, run, for four hours, come home, have a shower, have breakfast, start my day. Not healthy at all. <laughs> um, but, it doesn't but, sound like it. <laughs> no, but this <laughs> was the stage that I was going through where I wasn't open to anyone. My relationship had just broken down and I wasn't, I wasn't helping myself in any way. So the other way that made me feel alive was I started to binge eat as well. 
and on anything. Sometimes it was healthy, like I'd eat a whole, you know, like a whole pound or two pounds of nuts in an afternoon while I'm, you know, doing nothing. Or sometimes it was I would eat, you know, crappy food, chocolate and tubs of ice cream and things like that. And I would feel great while I'm doing it because you get that, you know, that, <laughs> that neurological hit because you're having the sugar and, and, and the dopamine, all the rest of it. But then obviously the crash was really bad. So then what would happen was I would go for a run or I'd go for a bike ride and I wouldn't eat for like 36 hours. So my, my body composition didn't change from the outside. So no one in my circle knew because if I binged and ate, you know, six or 7,000 calories in a night when I was really depressed to make myself feel better, then I didn't eat for 24 hours. Plus, I would do six or seven hours of training over the next 36 hours and it would balance out, right? Um, so, like, that was the merry-go-round seesaw day to day life of what I was battling for a couple of years. Um, and it got to a point where I was standing on tops of bridges and not wanting to live anymore. I was hiding it from family and friends. No one knew anything about this because I felt ashamed. I wasn't ready in my part of the journey to be open. I, I didn't quite understand why I felt like this, even though I'd started going to therapy uh, and yeah, my therapist was trying to help me un- to help understand why I felt like this. And I was just in a really, really low state. And that happened, that was going on in that sense for several years uh, until I, I found the internal strength to actually start opening up and talking to some family members on a really, really basic level that I was not happy. You know, Luke, uh, thanks for sharing that. Um, I, I know it, it can be hard to talk about things like this. And, you know, I hear a lot from certain runners, different people who say oh, running is my therapy. And while I cer- certainly think that's true to an extent, uh, you know, I, I think from your story, we're seeing that running can actually be a codependent behavior. And, you know, one of the things that was really instrumental in your recovery was seeing a therapist and actually talking about uh, your, your, what you were going through with a professional. And so I'm, I'm glad that we could highlight that for folks. Yeah. It, the two things that people ask me, what changed your, what changed your life and how did you pull yourself out of that dramatic downward spiral? Because I was going to crash sometimes, right? Binge eating that much insomnia, um, you know, doing 20 to 25 hours of week of, of training when I was also training other clients in the gym and, and doing speaking engagements and, and, and doing these big challenges, like these big ultra endurance, like I'm talking 100-mile races, uh, running races, 100K races, double Ironman triathlons. This is the type of stuff that I was doing. Meanwhile, on the other side, I was binge eating, not sleeping, overtraining all the rest of it so i was going to crash hard and people ask what changed how did i pull myself out of this it was the fact that i allowed myself to go and talk to a stranger to start with because i could be anyone right when you go talk to a therapist they're banking on you being honest so you can be honest or you can tell as many lies as you want and tell a side of the story that you want, but you're the only one that knows the, the true truth of it. So I 
I could talk to a, a stranger because I didn't actually know who I was and I, I felt comfortable with that. But the other side of it was is my, my parents kept asking me and I'm very close to my mum and dad even though they're in Australia and I'm in the UK. They kept saying, are you okay? And, and I said, yes, yes, yes. And finally I said to them, I'm not. And they were extremely supportive and they were extremely helpful and just knowing that they, they cared and being open with people that love, know that you know that they love you and you love them and you can have that supportive conversation. And for me personally, it was also opening up to a therapist because that was my first port of call because I knew that they didn't know me from a bar of soap, so to speak. And over time, I became more and more honest. And when I realized I became more and more honest with the therapist, I started to feel better in my recovery. Have you taken anything that you've learned from your time with your therapist and your recovery from depression and applied it to your training and your running pursuits? Because it sounds like there's been this big shift in your mindset over the last couple of years. Yeah, it's it's been a big change. Um, I I realized when my, my body broke down and that I couldn't keep pushing myself like this and I had this 18 months where I basically did no physical exercise whatsoever. Uh, one of the big things that I realized is that, um, and this it sounds really obvious, but your body is is not a machine, right? And unless you unless you take care of it, you know, going back to use the word holistic again, unless you take care of it from so many different angles or avenues, you know, because your body's full of all these different systems. And I understand this from a physiological level because, you know, I, I did a degree in exercise science and I've been an athlete my entire life. So I understand the concept that the body has different systems. And as runners, we, we normally take care of like one, maybe two systems. You know, we might foam roll to take care of our muscles and, you know, stuff like that. And we know that we're running, we take care of our cardiovascular system because it works our heart and our lungs. But what about everything else? And one of the things that my, I had two therapists over years, one of the things that my therapist said was, Luke, your body is not a machine. It's built up from different layers. And what he meant was it was the different systems of the body creates the body as a whole. And he said, you have to take care of every layer you have. And he said, you know, the, ner the nervous system and the cardiovascular system. And, you know, he talked about the like spiritual, uh, emotional, um, he said, you know, you also have to take care of your hormonal system as well, because that can make you have highs because we're talking about binge eating and also the lows as well with, with withdrawal from the brain as well. Um, so he talked about the body in layers in terms of not just the systems of the body, but also, you know, whether you have a spiritual background um, and also the emotional connection of what you have. So that was one of the things that I, that I took away from it, uh, from working with a therapist. And one of the other big things as well was, and I think this is probably a really key takeaway for a lot of listeners and a lot of people who you work with, is the amount of, um, not pressure, but the, the amount of emphasis that we put on as humans on a training session or a race is always, always, always so much more than we actually need to. Because that training session for that one day, 
even if you're going for the Olympic trials, let's say, and there's a training session a couple of months ago that you missed, some people might put so much emphasis on that one training session and for the next hour, the next 24 hours, the next week, the next month, they're going to be thinking about that one missed session. And we go and do this, this race and we, we make it a big race. We make it a big deal. But all it is is putting one foot in front of the other. So we put too much emphasis on one thing that we have in front of us and we get overwhelmed with the pressure that we put on ourselves for this one thing that in reality doesn't really have much of an impact on how we live our life on a daily basis or for the rest of our lives. And that was one of the things that uh, I can, I, and I'm, I'm picturing myself sitting in the therapist's office now where I was looking when he was saying this, when I was thinking about it. And that was that's one of the things that really hit home with me. And for my race, what I was putting too much emphasis on was my ultimate triathlon that I called, that I was leaning up to, that ultimately broke me in 2015, where I did a 2,000 kilometer in 12 days swim, cycle and run from Morocco to Monaco. I made out that if I didn't do this and if I didn't train for it and I didn't have this whole big event created how I envisioned in my mind, that my life was going to come crashing down. So understand the amount of emphasis that we're putting on a single training session in a day or a race that we have coming up and know its place in the grand scheme of things that is your complete life. I love this. And, and I think that what this really instilled in you is this appreciation for a long-term outlook and perspective on your training. You know, there's this saying in running that runners need to have a short memory when it comes to poor workouts or races, but be eternally optimistic. And, <laughs> you know, it's that it's an important mindset to have because you're going to have bad runs, bad workouts, bad races. That's, you know, you, you may even have more mediocre races than great races. And that's just almost part of being an athlete is, you know, doing it for the right reasons. And, uh, you know, there's this great quote that I like, it's, it's something along the lines of, you know, even if I had a terrible workout session today, at least I know that I was doing something that I loved. And, and I think that's a great way to frame it and to think more positively about our running, our, you know, whatever sport you might be involved in, you're still able to do it. And, and, and that's really why most of us are involved in the sport of endurance running. It's because we like to do it. It teaches us something about ourselves. And, you know, when we can think more long-term about our training and our goals, uh, I think that just makes us better runners. I totally agree. And one of the things that I always have in my mind, and it's based off the story I just told you, is there, there are no big moments. You know, So if we all love running and we all love endurance running and to the core, like the reason why we do it is because we enjoy it. So then if we put pressure on ourselves because this is, this is the one session every week that's, that's the big session, right? The main session. We, we've got to tick this one off. And then there's a race coming up and it's our A race. You know, it's, it's the main race for the season. Well, then we're putting internal pressure on ourselves from something external. There's something that's out of our control, i.e. a race with other people, with conditions that you can't control. Whereas we love running. We do it because we love it. We do it because we enjoy it. So don't 
the way I tell myself and with other clients when I work with them in terms of uh, performance mindset coaching is whether it's the Olympic trials, the Olympic marathon or a final at the Olympics or a training session or you're just love running, it's a park run or whatever, don't look at it as this is the day I'm going to do my personal best. This is the day I'm going to win. This is the day I'm, I'm going to work harder than I've ever worked before. Look at it as this is another day I get to enjoy what I love doing. And when you can start putting days, training sessions, weeks, races together, that you turn up to the start line and it's just a case of I'm just going to run. And I'm going to run to the level that where I've trained in the past to get me to where I am today. And all I'm going to focus on is enjoying the moment I'm in now because this A race is not an A race. It's just a running race. And actually, it's not even a running race. It's just me putting one foot in front of the other with loads of other people around me. And for my own personal enjoyment and even performance and with other clients who I work from a performance mindset coaching standpoint, and also I've spoken to many other athletes in different sports alongside running, the ones who enjoy the sport the longest is they don't look at it as is every time they're trying to win or beat themselves or beat their personal best is they're just trying to enjoy what they've always enjoyed doing and that's running and that's putting one foot in front of the other. Yeah, this is a really important mindset shift for runners to have. And I've been talking a lot more about your mindset and developing this kind of mental fitness. And uh, I think what this is, is a focus on being process oriented. So no matter what kind of run you're doing, whether it's a long run, a recovery run, a workout, or even a race, you know, you're showing up and you're executing to the best of your ability. And there's almost no difference in how you prepare and execute uh, a C or a D race to a B race and an A race. You know, you're all just executing on that process and doing your best uh, no matter what. You know, doing your best on a recovery run means you're running an appropriate pace. You're not going too hard. Doing your best in a race is trying to run as hard as you can. And, and I think having that process oriented outlook on your training is one of the most valuable. Uh, mindset shifts that runners can have because it gives them a more sustainable long-term running career. And I think ultimately it makes people into better runners because they're not putting all that undue pressure on themselves. And, you know, they're not just thinking, uh, you know, about those external results. They're really thinking a lot more internally and you get more reward and satisfaction from that anyway. I agree. And I think the other thing that is important for for runners to to think about is we always look at our seasons right from basically january to december the calendar year right and we build up through the the spring and and into the summer and, and the fall and all the rest of it and then we break that down into training blocks between races and then we most of the people right most athletes who aren't professional and even some professional will then break it down from a Monday to Sunday. Okay. But a lot of people miss the fact that accumulative fatigue is real. We don't go to bed on Sunday and all of a sudden we have these magical Sunday night fairies come and fix us and we're at a hundred percent on Monday morning and we go again, right? Accumulative fatigue is real. And one of the things that I that I like to do for myself now 
and uh, with others is don't look at, let's say we're looking at 2020 this year, right? And don't look at it as just this year and don't break it down to training blocks and then what are you going to do on a week based in that training block? Look at things from a maybe a three or a four or a five year um, schedule. You go, actually, there's a race I would really like to do well in two years' time. Or this race that I would really like to do well this year, maybe I, I spend 18 months instead of six months preparing for it. Or maybe I spend two years instead of one year preparing for it. And you take things a little bit slower. So you have that longevity. So like Olympic athletes, they look at their life as an athlete in four-year blocks, right, to peak at the Olympics. And they try and peak once uh, once every other once a year for leading up to Olympics for the world championships for most for most uh, Olympic athletes especially in like track and field and things like that so why can't we as just everyday athletes who like being the best that we can be why can't we start looking at things from a longer term of not just a year not just a training block not just a week but even 18 months even two years and we and we put in longer recovery times or we instead of having a six-week block it's an eight-week block, and we actually take a little bit of training off, physical training off, to give us a little bit more time to recover because to try and keep that longevity going over the season, over the next season, the season ahead of that. And that's one of the things that I've implemented as well. And there's, then there's less pressure on yourself that if you do miss a training session, you don't try and make it up because you're like, I'm looking longer term here. Yeah, I think this long term focus is is really important. Uh, and it just makes you into uh, a more strategic runner because you're thinking, you're thinking long term, and you're not rushing your training. And I think that's probably the biggest drawback with setting goals for yourself that might be uh, you know, too aggressive or too short-sighted or, or the timeline is simply too short is that you end up cutting corners, rushing the training. And, you know, that obviously results in burnout, injury, not meeting your goals. And that's no fun. You know, I'm, I'm always telling runners that, you know, a lot of the times that whatever goals they might have are completely attainable, just not in the time frame that they're hoping. So a lot of the times, you know, this is, you know, they have this goal. I want to qualify for Boston. I want to break 20 in the 5K, whatever it might be. And, and what I usually have to say is this is definitely possible, just not in two months. We might have to give ourselves six months or a year or maybe two years, depending on the goal, but it's certainly achievable. And again, going back to process, if we just focus on the process of training and improving gradually over time, we'll get there, but we need that long-term perspective first. Uh, I totally agree. Learn how and be willing to put in the time to give yourself the best chance of success. You know, these are things that I talk about on a regular basis is we can achieve so much more than we think we can, right? But the difference between people who try and and do something that they've always wanted to do and the ones that don't is the ones that are willing to learn how to do it and then are dedicated to putting the effort to give themselves a chance to succeed, they're the ones that are going to get closer to that goal. But the kicker is here is how much time does someone need? And I would say nine out of 10 people, and no doubt you'll probably agree with me here, uh, working with athletes, is nine out of 10 people 
the time frame that they think they need to achieve that goal that they want is always too short than the amount of time they actually truly need to make sure that they're ready for uh, to achieve that goal. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I talk to a lot of runners who have a marathon coming up in 12, 14, 15 weeks. And, you know, they're running 15 miles a week with a six mile long run. Mm. And I kind of have to say, we're just not really there yet. We can certainly run a marathon, just not in 15 weeks. Let's get your volume up. Let's make sure that you're running a longer long run so that the training isn't, you know, a crash course and learning how to run for a long time, which usually just ends up with you crashing. (laughs) Yeah, well, that's the thing. Like you could you could get someone to the start line. And they could finish the marathon, but I would say 99% of the people who would do that in that space of time is they're not going to enjoy it. They're probably going to stop running, high chance of injury. And is that all worth just a chunk of metal to put around your neck for a photo to put on Instagram? (laughs) I don't think so. I'd rather train appropriately and then have a better result, have a better time during the race. And and I think that's an overlooked part. It's not that, oh, you're going to be able to run faster if you train more appropriately. It's also that the race itself is going to be more enjoyable because you're not going to hit the wall at mile 15. You're not going to feel so terrible trying to run the distance or run the pace that you're trying to run because you're actually prepared for it. And, you know, you may actually get into the zone, you may get into a flow state and and that's where all the magic is. That's where the fun is, but you don't get there if you're not in shape and actually properly trained for what you're attempting to do. hundred percent. Haven't spent the time uh, needed to give yourself the chance to be successful. And a lot of people, it's it's the world we live in, right? We're, We're trying to cut corners wherever we can, but unfortunately, um, when it comes to, to fitness and doing it in the uh, in a, in a sporting way, there's you can't cut corners. It's about dedication and hard work, and sometimes people take longer to be ready for races than others. And unfortunately, we're not all the same, and everyone wants to be the same because they see their friends doing it in this amount of time, and they see people online doing it in this amount of time. But then that's them focusing on other people and not focusing on themselves. And that's a big thing that uh, I think a lot of people uh, get disappointed in because they're comparing themselves to others. Right. And that kind of speaks to, you know, external rewards versus internal rewards. You know, are you running for the right reasons or are you running for the Instagram shot? <clears throat> and that's, you know, that that's an important distinction. Um, Luke, I've I've really enjoyed talking with you. This is uh, this is just a great conversation, and and I think your perspectives on uh, training and life are are just so great. Uh, wh- what keeps you motivated today? What's your next adventure that you're planning on? My next adventure. Well, what keeps? Let's start with what keeps me motivated. Whenever I do something, well, really in life, really not just physically, but it's, it's let's talk physical. Is I have to know why I'm doing it. Right? And this is one of the processes that I go through. I, I call it my why tree. So I have to create a why tree. right? And it starts off with the leaves of the tree, like the superficial reasons why I want to do what it is that I, I plan on doing. And these can be anything from, you know, I, I, I want to see that area of the world or I want to 
I've never done that distance before, or anything, right? And then there's the branching wires, and these are the connecting wires between the leaves and the roots. And these are ones that most people will say, oh, this is the real reason why I want to do it. And then there's the deep rooted wires. And these are the real reasons as to why I'm willing to spend time, effort, energy, money, sacrifice, um, time in my life in the build-up because I need to be dedicated to training. And these deep-rooted wires, these are the strong ones that if you think of the tree analogy, when there's a storm, i.e. when something goes wrong, when you get an injury, when you get cold, um, when life gets in the way because I'm not a professional athlete anymore, um, the superficial wires, they they blow off the tree. And even if you have the same superficial wires every season, well, leaves on a tree, they, they change over the year, right? They come and they go, they change color. So if you rely on superficial wires, then when things get really tough in your training or on race day, then it, it's easier for you to, what I found, it's easier for you to quit, to give up, to sort of say, oh, I don't really want to do this anyway. And the branching wires, well, in the tree analogy is if there is a big storm, the leaves will fly off, but you can still hold on to these branching wires because they're strong, they're, they're structural, okay? But when things really get tough, they can break and they can crack and the tree, the branches can, can fall off. But it's the roots, the deep-rooted wires of this tree, of this wire tree, that really holds together why you want to do what it is that you're planning to set out and achieve. So for me, the deep-rooted roots of the tree, they're the things that ground me. They give me clarity into why I'm spending time, effort, energy, money, dedicating um, a period of my life to be ready for this challenge. So I have to really understand my deep-rooted whys because they also fuel me. They fuel me with internal motivation, right? Because I think external motivation is rather pointless and it's very fleeting. It comes and goes with a blink of an eye. But if you can understand the true reasons, the deep-rooted whys as to why you want to achieve whatever goal it is, then these roots like a root of a tree that dig down deep, they're the ones that give the nutrients to the tree, right? They absorb all the, all the nutrients from the soil through the roots and goes up to the trunk to the leaves. So if you can do that on a personal level uh, and even on a sporting level, then knowing the real deep-rooted reasons why you want to do what you want to do, then for me and for many other people who I work with, it gives them clarity. And what I think is clarity is the eternal energy that fuels your dreams. So if you truly know the real deep-rooted reasons why you want to do what it is that you want to do, then that should be enough to motivate you to do the things that you want to do. And you've got the, the branching wires and the superficial wires to, on top of that to help you moving forward. So I create a wire tree every time I'm about to decide whether I do something um, big, whether it's a 100K race, like I've got a couple of 100K races coming up. I've got an ultra-long triathlon in Switzerland that I'm doing. Before I flick the switch mentally that I'm going to do those things, I create a white tree and I have to go through that process. And when I know it's strong and I think, yep, yeah, this is cool, then I will say yes and then I'll tick that off. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, you're you're kind of talking about your your deep structural, uh, you know, the the things that almost form your personality and what drive you forward. Uh, I think they're similar to your values. Hundred percent. Living your values, then you know you're you're going to be a hard man to stop. Yeah, and even just a hard a hard individual to stop in terms of 
getting in your own way when it comes to training. You know, when it comes to, I did a long run this Sunday and I've got friends who say, oh, come and meet me out here and we're going to go to the park and we're going to go for a walk around the lake. And, and for me, like, I know that I've done, say, five hours of running. So this is just a, an example that I've done and that I've been through, that I've lived through. I've done a five-hour run in the morning. Do I need to be out around hanging out with friends, walking around, splashing around in the lake and, and messing about? No, I need to be resting. You know, so there's a knowing the deep rooted whys, I'm willing to sacrifice that on the short term because it's not going to be for the rest of my life. It might just be for this training block or it might just be leading up to this event. Once that's over, then I'll enjoy myself. Then I'll have several months where I say yes to everything because I'm not really training for anything. So it's also being a force to reckon with in terms of not getting in your own way to give yourself the best chance to be successful too. Yeah, and I think if if anybody is going to get in your way, it's going to be you, right? It's, <laughs> we, we are we are our own biggest obstacles, aren't we? Oh, one hundred percent. If we can understand that we control two things: our thoughts and our actions. And if we can consciously understand that, if we control our attitude in terms of the thoughts that we have towards ourselves and towards others, then that can dictate our actions then that gives us a great opportunity to step aside from those negative thoughts, from those self-harming actions, from those detrimental thoughts and actions, and gives us a chance to move past that, that person, that inner person that's trying to hold us back. Right on, Luke. Now, you mentioned a couple 100K races coming up. Is that, is that the big adventure that you have planned? Uh, this year, no. <laughs> Funny enough, 100K ultra marathon is not the big the big races I have planned. Uh, they're, they're, let's say they're warm-ups, right? <laughs> <laughs> tune-up races. Yeah, tune-up tune up races. Um, the, the two biggest things that I'm doing this year is one is an ultra triathlon in Switzerland called Tri-Everest. And it's the first official year this year. And it's called Tri-Everest because you climb the height of Everest over the bike and the run. Um, so it's in Switzerland, there's a lot of hills, mountains, um, and yeah, so that's in July and it's a, uh, let me do it in miles for your listeners. It's a 2.5 mile swim. It's a 160 mile bike ride with, uh, I'm trying to do it, about 22,000 feet worth of climbing. And then there's a 19-mile 19, 19 run with about 7,000 feet of climbing. Yeah, sounds like a piece of cake. Yeah, so it, it should be fun. It should be a really long day in beautiful Switzerland, cycling and running with a bit of swimming for a warm-up. Uh, and then in October, uh, I, I'm planning, it's, in, it's, it's sort of booked in, but a 110-mile race in england and it's got uh how much does it have it's got about 30 uh, i think thirty-nine thousand feet of climbing um in the 110 miles um so it's lumpy shall we say yeah that's that's more climbing than the tri-everest race it is it is a significant amount of more climbing um so i Started training for these in probably 
August, yeah, started about August last year. Um, so I've been swimming, cycling, running um, in the gym, but not too much um, training for these there. And But also to touch on my points that I think everyone should look longer term is I started training in August specifically for the Tri Everest Triathlon in July this year and the the um, 13 Valleys race it's called in October at the end of the year in October uh, in sorry in August last year I've been training for that but this year is going to is I also look at it as training for next year and next year is also training for 2022 so I actually had a three three year plan basically that I mapped out for my training because I've got some big challenges coming next year and even bigger challenge coming in 2022. But I've already sort of loosely mapped out my training in these are periods where I'm going to rest and recover. And I'm talking about months at a time. These are periods where I'm going to do a little bit more. These are periods I'm going to focus on this and I'm going to focus on that. And and so I'm looking at my training on a week-to-week basis but also I'm looking at it, this is part of a three-year training block um, as well. Very exciting. And I, I love that running is cumulative. So what you do this year you know, builds on what you did last year and prepares you for what you're going to do next year. And so by training for you know, uh, having this like multi-year kind of training block that you're setting up for yourself, you know, it very much builds on itself. And, you know, that's, that's what progression is all about. So uh, really exciting, Luke, I, I wish you the best of luck. And, and if folks want to learn more about you and your work and follow along on these adventures that you're doing, where can we find you? Yeah, you can find everything on my central hub, which is my website, luketybersky.com. And on there, you will find links to my um, performance mindset for athletes course. And uh, that's basically everything that I've learned from being a professional soccer player to going through my own personal journey that we talked about today, or part of that we talked about today, alongside all the ultra endurance challenges that I have took on and, and accomplished, what I've learned on mindset, how we view, think and act in the world and be able to use that from a performance standpoint, i.e. being the best that you could be. So I just launched that. Um, how about this? I give uh, your listeners a discount code for that um, and we'll, we'll, we'll chuck a, a chunk off, off that and we can leave that in the show notes so you can send that out to, to your listeners. Um, and also, if you want to know more about my life story and everything that I went through, I've got a book called Chasing Extreme. It's available on Amazon. And if you want to see what my performance mindset looks like, and one of the biggest challenges I've done, I, I mentioned it earlier, called The Ultimate Triathlon. It's a full feature documentary on uh, Amazon as well. It's on Amazon Prime, so it's free if you've got Amazon Prime and you can watch The Ultimate Triathlon and see me swim, cycle, and run from Morocco to Monaco covering 2,000 kilometers in 12 days. And if you want to say hello to me, just I'm Luke Taberski on social media. Um, write me a comment, write me a direct message if you've got any questions and I'll answer you um, pretty quickly. Great, Luke. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks for sharing your story. Thanks for sharing your expertise. I know that uh, I, I definitely learned a lot and, and I really appreciate your perspectives on things. It's been an absolute ple- uh, pleasure, Jason, and thanks for having me on. 
Hey everyone, Jason here one more time to thank you for listening and remind you to go check out Luke's book, Chasing Extreme. It's the type of massively inspirational story that I think can benefit all of us right now. And before you turn me off today, you should definitely check out Steady MD, which is led by Sub3 Marathoner Dr. Josh Emder. The goal here is to give you a personal doctor online that's just for runners to help you stay fit, healthy, injury-free, and competitive. The best part? There are no copays, waiting rooms, or surprise bills. Instead, you'll get same-day virtual responses from a doctor who's there for you 24-7. This is telemedicine at its finest. And if you've ever seen a doctor or a physical therapist who has no experience with runners, then you know how valuable it is for hard-charging athletes. Having a doctor who gets you and really understands the sport of running and your running goals is priceless. Go to SteadyMD.com slash strengthrunning to see if there are any spots left and how you can benefit from having a PCP who's also a runner. That's SteadyMD.com slash strengthrunning to see all the details. Finally, if you're interested in seeing what Team Strengthrunning is all about and checking us out and potentially joining, go to strengthrunning.com slash join. I think now more than ever, it's incredibly important to connect with other runners in the broader running community, and I'm keeping the team open indefinitely for anybody who'd like that support. Thank you for listening. Thank you all for the recent Apple Music reviews, and we'll be in touch soon.